Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. And the quote that I used in the article um, was from Thomas Jefferson. It was from 1820, and it was in response to uh, a question he received about the uh, Missouri Compromise. But he said slavery was like holding a wolf by the ear. You can either hold him nor safely let him go. Justice is on one scale and self-preservation on the other. So that leads me to believe that they understood uh, that slavery was evil but they just couldn't let it go. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Patrick Hannum, and he's got a new article on Lord Dunmore's proclamation to free and arm enslaved peoples during the American Revolution. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode was brought to you by Casemate, publishers of The Quaker and the Gamecock, Nathaniel Green, Thomas Sumter, and the Revolutionary War for the South by Andrew Waters. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we're joined by 44-year military careerist and Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Patrick Hannum, discussing one of the most important elements and events in the history of Virginia. Lord Dunmore's proclamation to free and arm enslaved peoples in the beginning years of the American Revolution. Professor Hannum gives us wonderful insight into this event, which gets a lot of attention from a social and cultural perspective, for obvious reasons. But he comes from a very unique, long-time military background. He was a ground commander for 29 years. So he gives us not only a history of the proclamation and where it comes from, but also what the 1,400 or so African-American soldiers who joined British service during the war actually achieved. It's a great interview and a fresh perspective. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Patrick Hannum. Patrick Hannum, thank you for joining us. Well, I'm very pleased to be here. Tell us about your background. Well, I... uh spent 29 years as a ground combat officer in the United States Marine Corps. Um, I've had a lifelong interest in both education and American military history. I've fortunately been able to combine those two passions, working as a professor at the Joint and Combined Warfighting School, Joint Forces Staff College. We're part of National Defense University. Uh, The university headquarters is at Fort Leslie McNair in southeast Washington, but our campus is in Norfolk, Virginia. There, um, I focus on phase two joint professional military education and on campaigning at the operational level of war. The American Revolution gives us some really good uh, examples of many of the contemporary concepts that uh, I get to teach on a, a daily basis. I'm currently serving in my 44th year of service as both a uniformed military person and now a civilian uh, in the Department of Defense. 
What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, as a resident of southeastern Virginia, um, it became evident that the events of, of 1775 that um, really were instrumental uh, in establishing patriot or uh, Whig control of Virginia early in a revolution were not well documented here in a local area, and only recently um, are those events you know, being recognized uh, by local preservation efforts. So that renewed interest has sparked my interest. And uh, I also participated in a, a representing the Journal of the American Revolution at a media day hosted by the Jamestown, Yorktown Foundation, and including a, a visit to the, the relatively new um, Museum of the American Revolution at Yorktown. There they had a special exhibit, which runs through the 22nd of March of, of this year, 2020, on display as part of that exhibit was a copy of a Dunmore's proclamation. That sparked my interest in the topic because uh, I live in the city of Virginia Beach, Virginia, which was formerly uh, Princess Anne County, in uh, the location where Lord Dunmore reportedly issued his uh, proclamation on the 15th of November, 1775, was in Kemp's Landing, which is that physical location is only about four miles from my home. Another uh, a topic that, that links to this is that topic of information. Information was added as a joint warfighting function just recently by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So I've been able to put all those things together in this story. Who was Lord Dunmore, and how did he become governor of Virginia? Well, Dunmore uh, was a, a Scottish peer and he was first appointed governor of New York in 1770. But upon the untimely death of Virginia's royal, royal governor, Berkeley, uh, he was reassigned and posted to Virginia in 1771. He's probably best known for conducting Dunmore's War, which was a defeat of the Native American tribes along the Ohio River in the fall of 1774, but he was absent from the capital of Virginia at Williamsburg during that time for probably about four months, and it was during this critical period that the population of Virginia became more militant, militant and, and independent of, of crown rule, which contributed to the events of, of 1775 here. How would you describe his relationship with Virginia colonists before the war? Well, as, as governor of Virginia uh, in 1771 and reviewing some of his correspondence, it, it's, it's evident that he had a pretty good understanding of, of the population, but he was also immersed, as were the other colonial governors, in the, the general controversy that surrounded the events with the, you know, the, tea, the various acts, the Tea Act of 1773, the Boston Port Act, and, of course, um, he disbanded because of the behavior of the, the House of Burgesses in Virginia. He disbanded them in, in May of 1774. And uh, on 1 June 1774, in support of the, the population in Boston, they had a day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer as a as form of solidarity with the people of Massachusetts. And uh, they convened the first Virginia Convention in in Raleigh Tavern in 1774 there in Williamsburg. 
So all those things started to, to come together. They sent representatives of the First Continental Congress, and then citizens began creating their independent militias really in the fall of, of 1774. When he disbanded the militia, or we disbanded the legislature in 1774, they did not have an opportunity to renew the, uh, the or authorize uh, the militias, and so people began, the counties began organizing their militias really as extra-legal without formal government control. And these were then the militias that confronted the governor and, and the royal authority. What was his attitude toward patriots early on in the imperial crisis? Well, he's clearly, you know, a, a representative of, you know, of the king. And uh, he sees himself as the, the one, one authority here in Virginia. Unfortunately, he doesn't have much to back that up. Uh, he has no real military force. There are some shallower draft ships that are operating here. He does, he is able to conduct some uh, operations on the many waterways around Virginia and eventually um, has to take refuge on those ships because he can't sustain himself. He has no, uh, no military force ashore until he receives some reinforcements from, uh, um, from Florida but uh, he is a um, definitely a real supporter of royal policy and of the king, and he views the actions of the colonists as uh, counter to what needs to be done to establish royal authority here in Virginia. What is meant by uh, enslaved peoples being the Virginia planters' internal enemy? So when, when you begin to, to peel back that, that question, um, it becomes evident in, in looking at some of the correspondence that Virginians and, and those in, in political um, leadership positions understood that slavery, slavery was in, in the end going to be a real curse for, for the South because the, the, the slave population was essentially the labor pool. The slaves made up approximately one-third of the population of Virginia. So if the society was going to continue to, to function as, as an economic engine, it needed that, that labor. But to keep that labor, you had to have the slavery. And the slaves were not a happy lot. That The, the, the misconception that, that slaves were happy with their, um, their position of being enslaved is, is certainly not... Uh, not correct, and there was always that fear of an insurrection, a slave rebellion. And so the idea of liberating slaves or arming slaves was something that the average white Virginian would, would make them, them shudder. They just couldn't conceive of that. Uh, in this respect, it's evident that you know, from Virginia south, the, the American colonies looked a lot more like those uh, 10 British colonies in the Caribbean uh, in terms of really the fear of a, of a slave insurrection. And the quote that I used in the article um, was from Thomas Jefferson. It was from 1820, and it was in response to a question he received about the uh, Missouri Compromise. But he said slavery was like holding a wolf by the ear. You can neither hold him nor safely let him go. 
justice is on one scale and self-preservation on the other. So that leads me to believe that they understood uh, that slavery was evil, but they just couldn't let it go. How did Dunmore develop the idea of arming enslaved peoples? So that's a very interesting question because the, the records indicate that as early as 1772, you know, less than a year after he was uh, appointed as governor of Virginia, he concluded that, that slavery was a, a real problem and that uh, he was looking at it from a perspective of if the slaves would rebel in support of Spanish aggression uh, in the southern colonies, uh, that would create a very, very serious problem for, uh, you know, for controlling the population. And so uh, it's evident early on that he, he sees this as, a, as a, significant, a significant military, economic, and, and social issue. Now, where he, he has the idea... Uh, when the citizen, when the citizen militias start threatening his ability to control the colony of Virginia in the spring of 1775, he actually threatens to arm the slaves after he's confronted about moving the, uh, the powder stores out of the magazine in Williamsburg aboard ship. And he justifies his actions in part by saying that, well, I was afraid that the slaves might rebel, and I wanted to move that powder to where they couldn't, uh, couldn't get their hands on it, and I'll give it back to you when the time is right. So at that point, he basically threatens to arm the slaves. He knows he has very few options because he has no military force and he's trying to threaten and use that information element to uh, intimidate the population. Talk about his decision to confiscate gunpowder and how that worsened Virginia's political situation. So uh, he, he sees the deterioration of his, his, his ability to, to control the population. Uh, again, he has no military force. He will eventually get some... Uh, regular combat forces from the 14th Regiment out of St. Augustine. But the 14th is uh, very depleted and is very under strength. Uh, He eventually ends up with probably about 160 soldiers, which is really two companies, which was about all they could mobilize. The the regiment had been on duty in the the Caribbean and had suffered significant uh, losses due to uh, disease uh, and then been posted to to St. Augustine there in uh, in East Florida. So um, as as the threats posed by all of the 13 colonies grew, uh, General Gage had very limited manpower to send to the the governors. So clearly, Dunmore understood his precarious position, and he was really grasping at straws at this point, trying to intimidate. The, uh, the, the the Whigs here in Virginia and the committees and intimidate them into uh, backing down simply by the threat of arming slaves because slaves constitute a third of the population. And there was a great fear of a slave insurrection. And so that's the element that he tried to uh, 
engender. That's what he tried to uh, portray uh, to really get the Whig, the Whig politicians to back down and to support royal policy. How many enslaved peoples responded to Dunmore's proclamation? Uh, how did their lives change if they did? So the, the estimates are that approximately 1,400 um, slaves liberated themselves from their, their plantations and, and came over to, to support Dunmore. And that's through probably the summer of, of 1776. So if you look really from the summer of 1775 through the summer of 1776, they're looking at uh, probably around um, 1,400 are the, the best estimates that we can come up with. Um, there's, an, there's estimates of 300 to, to 430 Negroes forming an organization by December of 1775 called the Ethiopian Regiment. Now that, again, that, that regiment would grow to somewhere around 1,400 total serving, but there was an extremely high uh, mortality rate. Um, the slaves were very susceptible to many of the diseases that would be passed once they were put in confined spaces with, uh, with individuals that uh, they hadn't had contact with before. So when Dunmore is forced to go aboard ship and the, uh, the lack of water, lack of food, uh, cramped spaces, disease becomes rampant. So of these 1,400 um, Negroes, former slaves, that joined him, uh, only a handful probably survived to make it to New York or point south once Dunmore uh, evacuated Virginia in the summer of, of 1776. We think many of those probably came from, uh, from Princess Anne and Norfolk counties. Uh, again, the city of Norfolk today and the city of Virginia Beach in, in the south side of, of coastal Virginia, and probably about 650 of those individuals from other parts of, of Virginia. How does this topic help us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, again, um, if, you, if you take this idea that in 1775, the events that forced the royal governor to evacuate Virginia, the, the king lost control. The, the patriots, the Whigs, were able to establish political, military, economic control of Virginia. And really, other than some minor raiding, uh, which was not permanent, uh, there's really no threat to Virginia, major threat to Virginia, until Benedict Arnold comes in late 1780, early 1781, and makes his raid on Richmond. There had been control of, of the Chesapeake Bay uh, with um, privateers and other military vessels patrolling and introducing commerce, but there really wasn't a big threat ashore until really 1781, and we're all familiar with the events that all ultimately culminate at Yorktown. So had the British been able to retain control of Virginia, um, retain control of the largest city 
south of of New York between uh, Charleston and, and New York, which was was then the, the port city of Norfolk, which was actually destroyed as a result of these events. Uh, the British would have had a base of operations from which to operate out of in the Chesapeake Bay and could have sustained much easier um, control of the coastal areas of Virginia, even if they didn't have the ability to push inland with large numbers of, of land troops. They could have done it with, with a much smaller force. That would have allowed the uh, loyal population, and, and Norfolk was very loyal because it was a, a, a part of the mercantile system, and there were many Scottish merchants there. So one of the reasons why the, the Whigs decided to, to destroy Norfolk because it was a very strong loyalist base, and they knew they couldn't hold it. So the, the, the repercussions of what happened with Dunmore's proclamation and eventually Dunmore losing control of Virginia in late 1775, early 1776, really opened up Virginia as a support, a base of operations and support for the Whigs, and as the most populous uh, state uh, in a colony and then state, um, you know, Virginia had a lot of human resources and a lot of abilities to supply and sustain uh, the Continental Army and get those supplies north. So had Virginia been occupied uh, successfully by the royal governor in 1775-76, they would not have been able to support the revolutionary effort with people and resources to the extent they did as the war progressed. And again, it wasn't until really late 1780, 1781, that the British came back to Virginia in force and interdicted that supply line. Patrick Hannum, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.